As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally Football Show today. Chelsea are European champions after a luxury city break in Porto. We salute the Londoners, 1-0 winners over Man City. Was it too cool versus too clever by half? Or team with Kante against team without Kante on a night when that name seemed to be everywhere, including between the words Timo Werner and score a goal. Also, in many ways this doesn't change the task they're facing. Away goals get done away with. And we hail promoted Brentford. Would-be's no longer, now the Premier League's 50th different team. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Okay then, listener, hello to you. It's Sunday the 30th of May and a little bit uh, earlier than we usually drop, but it's been an unusual weekend in many ways. We're joined by Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Also with us, Dom Fifield. Hello, Dom. Hi, James. And Carl Anker. Hello, Carl. Ahoy, ahoy. Nicely done. Hope you've all been enjoying the weekend. If for many supporters, perhaps the biggest one of the season, would you say? Yeah, I, I, I think I did see a kind of, I don't know if it was a Twitter kind of moaning trend of people saying, oh, I didn't really enjoy or want to watch this Champions League final after the Super League and the kind of relentless season. But actually, I thought it was a brilliant game. I feel sorry for people who couldn't kind of separate their... Uh, anxieties or gripes with the fact that it was a brilliant game to watch. Yeah, this is probably the wrong sport to follow if you can't separate your unease with various aspects of the the financing of it and and podcasts within it, indeed. Anyway, uh, Dom, (laughs) did you have a good weekend? Yeah, I did. I did. I really enjoyed the playoff final in the afternoon and and the the Champions League final was was excellent. Really, really good. Intriguing contest and... uh, and as much as I'm sort of reluctant to see a Chelsea win as any point as being, you know, them using the underdog spirit, that they they were the underdogs in that fixture because City City had been so dominant domestically. So it was it was nice to see a surprise. Okay, and I imagine Carl that you were hugely neutral for Saturday's game. <laughs> I have no feelings one way or the other. On, uh... The All right then. Well, let, let, let's start off. Uh, much to discuss uh, today. Of course, two matches uh, principally, but loads of other things happening with the Euros around the corner and that kind of thing. Let's begin, though, with events at the Dragao. Chelsea's 1-0 victory over Man City. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. As the ball is played all the way through to Mendy. And that is that! Chelsea are the champions of Europe again! Thomas Tuchel has overseen a magnificent second half of the season. And Kai Havertz has got the only goal in the final. And Chelsea are the champions of Europe again! Quizzing's Matt Davis-Adams there with his thoughts. On Saturday night's triumph at the Dragao, Chelsea picking up their second Champions League title nine years after the first. A very entertaining encounter it was. Where do you all want to start as we look back on it? With Cobra Kai, with Kante and his Cantonental coverage, with Pep's plan. What do you think it is, Daniel? I think we we risk normally focusing on the mistakes by the losers and and most of the coverage i think immediately post game and probably during the game as well did that so i think we should start with chelsea who were 
fantastic. Um, the difference between Lampard's team and Tuchel's, not just in their in their strengths, but also in their weaknesses, is is absolutely night and day. And um, I'm amazed at how quickly he has made them so resilient. I thought the 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 best. Kante obviously draws praise because when Chelsea wins, he's always fantastic. But I actually thought Rhys James and Ben Chilwell were their best players because the way they, they shut down Sterling and Mares, those two drifting inside and picking up space or staying out wide and beating them down the line, that's been the way City have, have really improved over the course of this season, I think. And Chilwell in particular, I thought was phenomenal against Mares, who's probably been City's best player over the last couple of months, particularly in the Champions League. And... They are two fullbacks slash wingbacks who who might well have lost their England places over the last few months. And I think last night we saw why, for all the clamour for Luke Shaw and Trent Alexander-Arnold, there's a reason why these two have played for England recently, because I thought they were absolutely superb. Hmm. Although it was Kante, of course, who popped up on that late Riyad Mahrez chance, which could have taken us to, to extra time. Dom, you watch a lot of Chelsea. What did you make of the performance? Who stood out for you? I thought they all... Were, were excellent actually um, I agree with Daniel that a lot of the focus in terms of the positivity around Chelsea focused on the on the, the younger players the, the Chilworth James Havertz even even Werner and, and the way that he stretched the play Mount but I mean I've done a piece this morning just I think that some of the older heads some, some of the old guard deserve some credit as well because if you go back to last season when they got humiliated at home by Bayern Munich in the in the knockout phase 3-0 home defeat in February it was those guys that were completely anonymous, those guys who looked completely out of their depth. And you just thought, well, they're on their way. They've gone at this level. Um, Conte wasn't even playing in that in that match. He was injured in having a succession of little niggling injuries over that period um, under Lampard. And, and yet here they are revived. Um, and I thought they were just, to a man, they were superb. I mean, I don't have a horse in this race, but... Beyond the 30 seconds, first 30 seconds when Chelsea started very, very poorly and actually almost considered a corner in the, in, within that 30 seconds, I thought Chelsea looked completely comfortable, really, until, you know, there was a bit, of, it was a bit frantic in the last five minutes, but you'd expect that when City are chasing a game. Mm. It, was a, it was a consummate performance, and, and they were by far and away the, the more cohesive, coherent team and dominated the occasion, really. Mm. Let's talk about their manager then, Thomas Tuchel. A runner-up last year in this game, a winner this time round, and a man who has Pep's number. And actually, every manager's number has, has been pointed out. He's now faced, let's see the list here, Guardiola three times, Zidane twice, Simeone twice, Klopp, Mourinho and Ancelotti this season. That's pretty much your Euro tactic guru pantheon. And his results read nine wins, no defeats, only two goals conceded. Extraordinary. And a Champions League trophy into their... Big Sam's got his number, though. <laughs> Big Sam. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, is that, and I'm going to touch on Pep's plan here, is that why Pep ripped things up and went with this experimental no-DM uh, lineup? Because his previous attempts in the last six weeks against Tuchel hadn't gone to plan. Carl, what do you think? I think there is something of the Pep overthink theory that we've discussed on this podcast before, how he, you know, he, he, he tends to go into these big games Um sort of focused on protecting his team's floor rather than giving the initiative. And then you have a sort of cagey 20 minutes from City as the team can't figure out because it's so unfamiliar. And then by the time they revert back to normal, it, it's too late. Um, and I think some of that happened in the Champions League final, playing without a ball-winning defensive midfielder. When you're up against Chelsea, the team with the best ball-winning defensive midfielder in the world is a, a certain kind of hubris and or strange decision. Uh, City, it's it's very weird because I still believe Manchester City are the best football team on the planet. I still believe Pep Guardiola is probably the best football coach on the planet. But this is the joy of football. This is the joy of cup competition, random variants. And the human element can sometimes, you know, it's very fun seeing someone as intelligent as Pep Guardiola have a flaw, which is basically stop messing around and poking the fire. Mm. Is he the best league manager, but not the best cup manager on the planet? Possibly. I think what's been interesting... In the Champions League finalists and the Europa League finalists is you're seeing masters of what I term the technical narrative and the emotional narrative. So you've got Unai Emery, who is very much someone who's a master of technical narrative, which is what's the stuff going on in the chessboard in front of you. And you've got 
uh, Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer, who's quite good at the emotional narrative, which is who is the person sat across from me or across the chessboard and can I work their flaws? Pep Guardiola, technical narrative. Tuchel and Chelsea have most likely won the Champions League because Tuchel is a man who understands both the emotional narrative and the technical narrative. He understood if I move N'Golo Kante in these areas and use my wing backs in this situation against Manchester City, that would be really good. And also Pep Guardiola is a man who's going to panic from these moments onwards if I go a goal mm. ahead. So we just need to fall back into a very very pleasing compact 4-4-2 shape for most of it. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably why. Tuchel has been so successful in, the, in this cup competition. It always helps when you've got someone as good as Kante. All right. And Kai Havertz, who's, of course, a principal reason why they won this game, scoring the only goal of the encounter, favoured in that exploit by the run of Timo Werner, who, of course, drew off uh, one of the City defenders. And Havertz notching up his first Champions League goal for Chelsea. And then afterwards with a bit of post-game brilliance did you enjoy his interview Daniel <laughs> yes I did enjoy his interview uh, I don't think I've ever heard a footballer say what we're all thinking quite so <laughs> eloquently and bluntly as he did in that moment because there's a lot of pressure on you you're the most expensive Chelsea player ever you've played, paid it all back in one night nearly to be honest right now I give a on that we won the Champions League yeah I, I, I'm really happy for Havertz because um, as that interview referred to he he was a very expensive player and he has had a kindly sort of flitting in and out season and I think to an extent that's because he feels like a kind of flitting in and out player um he's almost got a sort of uh more aesthetically pleasing Thomas Muller vibe about him in that he seems to be constantly looking for the space and happy to kind of sit on the fringes of a game but then you know when he makes that run and it was the best run he made all night. And he did one for the in the second half as well that, that ended with a Christian Pulic should have scored a second goal. Mm. He, he doesn't seem to mind that much where 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 his performance level is for 60, 70 minutes. And even if he's touching the ball that much, um, when he makes those runs, he wants them to be decisive. And and he was he, he did so brilliantly last night. He's not a man who will win Man of the Match awards, but he is a man who will play vital roles in games that Chelsea and Germany win, I think. Mm. I mentioned uh, Timo Werner's run because I think we all feel a bit uh, sorry for him. But th- the bigger part in the build-up to that was, of course, the wonderful Mason Mount Kakar-esque uh, assist. He's just been phenomenal all season. He's just, he's just been brilliant. I mean, it's amazing to think that there were supporters out there that were criticising him at, at stages this season. And there was a comment made post-match last night about the media um, being against Mason Mount, I'm not sure that's the case. I think the media have actually bought into how brilliant he is throughout most of this season um, and and last. Um, but there were a group of maybe maybe it was his association with Frank Lampard. Maybe maybe people thought that Frank Lampard was uh, getting an easy ride as Chelsea manager, and they took out that frustration on Mason Mount. But the the, the kid has been absolutely outstanding for Chelsea. Their Player of the Year by a country mile. Um, and the pass, the actual, the arc, the vision, the delivery of that pass to set Havertz away was exquisite. Yeah, on on the Guardiola thing, I mean, it wasn't just that he he played without the defensive midfielder because he ostensibly did play with the defensive midfielder. He just played Ilkay Gundogan there in a role that um, he's moved so successfully away from. That was the thing that was most odd to me. There was a couple of times that there was one in the first half and, and also two in the second after he'd been booked where you saw Gundogan kind of run forward as if to join with him, in with a move and then think, oh, hang on a minute. Remember, I'm not going to be doing that in this game. I'm meant to be settling. Now, to me, the, the European Cup final is one of those games where you want to be, you don't want to be thinking about new things because you're already tense, you're already under pressure, you're already nervous. You want to be working on muscle memory. And you saw Gundogan kind of having to change his muscle memory at least two or three times. And, you know, I think if they'd have just played, it would have been a real shame to drop Gundogan for that final. And I can see maybe that Guardiola wanted to reward him for the season. He might, he might not stick around much longer. He's been brilliant this season. So maybe there was a case of just wanting to fit him in. But even just replacing Rodri with Gundogan and I think they would have been far better yeah there's an American coaching maxim which I I believe is you dance with the girl who invited you to the ball uh, which I yes also known as a do what brought you to dance okay well that's simpler that's much nicer Uh, Chelsea just the one goal but about 12 N'Golos we we should talk about him Kante who I mean there are various explanations of his astonishing 
prowess, the, the football brain on that guy. But effectively, he's from five minutes into the future, no? In that <laughs> he doesn't ever seem to be hurried and yet is always, always there. He's a phenomenal footballer. Three tackles, ten ball recoveries, which I think that that's the fun thing. It's not only is he winning the ball all the time, but he's only really having to make tackles two or three times as course correction. And I think we've slowly gone away from saying N'Golo Kante is uh, Energizer Bunny who runs around the pitch and we are now fully understanding he has an ability to see where the ball is going that borders on precognition. His presence and his understanding of his own gravity on the football field is quite interesting. I really like that phase on the Conte where he wore red boots and there were two or three times where he would be able to put off a defender because he knew if I just moved five yards forward, the other football player would absolutely lose it and make a mistake. Um, and I re- The fact that he's a man of the match against Atletico Madrid, second leg, man of the match, Real Madrid, first leg, man of the match, Real Madrid, second leg, man of the match in the final. There's maybe four, five players on the planet right now currently playing that you can say, absolutely, you are an all-time great. And I think Kante now has moved into that conversation and if the Euros go well for France he can probably start putting his Mm. uh, Ballon d'Or campaign together He won more aerial deals than anybody else on the pitch and he was the smallest player on the pitch I mean it's just absolutely ludicrous I mean it's the yeah it's the fun thing that you know he's footballing invention and intuitive imagination can be far better than his sort of physical attribute there was that little bit where uh, Chelsea had a cross coming and Ruben Diaz and Zinchenko were going up and Kante was smart enough to know if I just, you know, reconfigure myself here and launch myself here, then I'll get my head to the ball ahead of these much taller players. He, he It's bizarre that he is so good and yet we still can't properly quantify the hows and whys of why he's good. We, we, we almost underestimate his footballing genius and it, mm. it is nothing short of genius and artistry now. I think the the thing I re- like about him the most is that his game, which is probably a role since Makaleli that has been kind of underlooked, is so obviously wrapped up in his humility as a person as well. It's a it's effectively a self sacrificing role that he has been so successful at doing that it's kind of inadvertently made him the star. You know, Chelsea players carrying around the pitch at the end, and even at that point, he's kind of thinking, "Well, why are you all doing this? Like, I didn't score the goal. I didn't." do this and that but he that humility is so part of that and it's so endearing to watch as a as a relative neutral mm. it was brilliant when he um when all the players are, are sidling past lining up past the uh the european cup after getting their medals after the game and most of them have sort of planted a kiss on big ears probably flaunting all kinds of covid19 <laughs> protocols on route but, but conte gets in front of it and he doesn't. He doesn't want to do the same. So he just sort of gently pats it on both sides, and then just walks on and waits for the captain to come and present it to him later on. I just, I love him to bits. I just think he's he's a he's an absolute phenomenon. Uh, as you point out, of course, he's been past one or two trophies in recent seasons. Sam writing in saying some Edward Mendy analysis and appreciation wouldn't be amiss. I mean, think particularly after was it Sasha the other day was saying that Chelsea desperately needed an upgrade on. Uh, on Mendy, which caused some excited some comment among listeners. Also, probably Christensen coming in for uh, Thiago Silva and doing a, a pretty faultless job uh, in his place. Uh, what, what did what did he make of Mendy? Yeah, I mean he was pretty quiet, wasn't he? Because yeah. he was, he was allowed to be, but he's brought that. You know, and it, it, it sounds incredibly harsh, but it, it's an inevitable comparison. It's not just that he's a very good keeper; it's that he solved Chelsea's biggest issue last season. Whether it whether it was their biggest issue on the pitch in quantifiable terms or not, psychologically, it felt like the thing that had to be solved if they were going to go deep into competitions like this. And um, he's just brought a, a again almost a Kante like calmness and tranquility to everything he does that just allows everyone else to feel like, hang on, even if we make a mistake here, someone's got it. So if someone in attacking midfield makes a mistake, they can believe Kante will sort them out. If a defender makes a mistake, they believe Edouard Mendy will help them out. And you can't kind of overestimate just how how much that helps a team express itself when they know they've got guys behind them who've got their backs. Mm. Uh, other stuff popping up on social media with well, the obligatory Duncan Alexander tweet. City had fewer shots on target than Cheltenham had against Man City this season. Nice one there. Uh, Leon Toomey, meantime, 
flagging up the, the piece that he wrote, Tom, saying Munich felt like an ending, but Porto feels like it should be a beginning. And I, I totally get his point. The only thing is, though, with Chelsea, one never really knows, does one. Colin Miller uh, making the point that all three previous European winners at the club were gone within months of their triumph. It's hard to imagine anything like that befalling Thomas Tuchel right now. But, but, but Dom, is this time going to be something to build long term on? I don't think Chelsea are going to change the way that they approach things. So it, when, when we talk long term with Chelsea, we're talking about players. We're not talking about coaches, really. I, I think it would be foolhardy to sit here and think that, that, that Tuchel is guaranteed. I mean, he'll get a new contract out of this, clearly, but it's still unlikely that he fulfills his contract because this is Chelsea and the first blip that comes along usually costs you your job. Right. Um, he, he he made that point really on the pitch post-match when he met Abramovich for the first time and spoke spoke to him and, and you know, it's all downhill from here almost was was his right. sentiment. Um, but Liam, absolutely, that that is right. And tw- 2012 was about a generation of Chelsea players, great Chelsea players, Um they may not have ducked out immediately after 2012, apart from Drogba, although he, even he came back. But they were on the wane. The club was moving on, the Czechs, the Drogbas, the Terrys, even the, even the Lampards, really, to a certain extent, Ashley Cole. Um, this team has got some senior figures around who, you know, the Azpilicueta has been there for, ni- he's been there for nine years. Thiago Silva, obviously, is on a short-term deal. Antonio Rudiger, you can argue, Jorginho, possibly, they're not going to be there long-term. But, They've got a nucleus of of really bright young things who are going to be at that club for a period of time, and that that made that result last night a bit of a warning for City, for United, for you know for everybody else in the Premier League and possibly across Europe. That th- these guys have won it and they're they're young, they've experienced that, they know how to do it now. There's possibility that as a generation, they could go on and do something quite special. It doesn't have to be under Tuchel; it can be under anyone at Chelsea, but you know, there is that potential there. Mm. That Rudiger tackle, by the way, I can't remember who the chance was, but that was extraordinary. That's absolutely sensational, wasn't it? It was to um, block Phil Foden, wasn't it, as mm. the ball was arrowing to the far corner. But and then he, he he smashed uh, De Bruyne's nose and damaged his left eye socket as well later on, which was not so good, but not I don't so think good. it was deliberate. But, but uh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't entirely undeliberate uh, no. either. Uh, no. From a City point of view, uh, their supporters may feel, well, you know, we did come close. It was only one goal. Had things been a little different, had that tackle not happened, had KDB stayed on the field, maybe it would have been, if Mares had had that, had had more luck with that chance right at the death, we would have gone to extra time. How much difference do you think KDB's exit did make? W- would it have been different if he'd stayed on the field? I think different in terms of, in relation to substitutes. So De Bruyne wasn't doing particularly well as the false nine. I, th- I think he's you know top three maybe top two passes of the ball um, but he was almost did a disservice because he was beginning to drop deep to try and offer options for Sterling and, and Mares to go forward but that wasn't quite coming off so maybe if he had stayed on and Gabriel Juice had come on later on and he you know De Bruyne dropped down into 10 things would have improved but it wasn't a great Kevin De Bruyne performance it was quite sad to watch him go off Wright Thompson once said uh certain things should not be allowed in high definition in football. Uh, and that was definitely a moment. I felt as if I was uh, privy to a very private moment and I felt quite sad for him. It was mm. very unfortunate there. Why do you think he, he didn't perform? Was it just not his day or was it something to do with the, the tactical setup? I think it's a little bit of both. I've, I've spoken to this with Dom and others. Kevin De Bruyne can be got at in bigger games. He's. This is not to say he's not good in big games. This is not to say... He's whatnot, but he can drop a six out of ten in a big game in a way that you'd be surprised the player of his talent can. Kevin De Bruyne has everything within him to take the majority of football games by the strap of the neck, and there are some big games, also indeed some small games, where he can't for you know reasons. You can sledge him, you can annoy him to a certain amount, you can get his preparation wrong, and he doesn't quite perform the way you want him to perform, which is a strange wrinkle for a player of that talent. There are far less technically skilled players that are more able to go, I'm just going to play at this level regardless. But I think part of that is just who De Bruyne is as a person. And sometimes, you know, that sort of emotional 
fluidity makes him go supernova and he drops a nine out of ten out of nowhere because he's angry. Uh, so I wouldn't want I wouldn't want that ability to stop. But there there is a small weakness to Kevin De Bruyne in the same way there is a small weakness to Pep Guardiola. That's very much something that happens above the shoulders rather than below him. Hmm. I should say he's De Bruyne has tweeted on on Sunday morning to say that he has a an acute nose bone fracture and a fracture of his eye socket. So I mean, it, hmm. at, at first it looked like. I think at first we all assumed it was a concussion injury. Mm. And then you saw, um, I think it was Cancelo or Ruben, or Ruben Diaz trying to pick him up off the floor and the medical staff kind of saying, yeah, hang on a minute, that might not be that helpful given the circumstances of what's happening. And then, then he just looked like he had a shiner and was kind of being brought off as a precaution. But yeah, two broken bones in the face, which is, um, yeah, is a pretty serious injury. And I, I don't know if it puts his Euros in doubt, but it, it well... We're still waiting to hear news on that, but it must put that in slight jeopardy, I'd have thought. Good lord, yeah, the yeah. face mask, I imagine. Mm. Mm. Fractured eye sockets are bad, though, aren't they? With James Tonkin said one this season was out for about 10 weeks, so it should take De Bruyne well out of the Euros, yeah. potentially. Crikey. All right, well, while we wait to hear more on that, it is the third year in a row that the Champions League has been won by a German manager, Klopp, Flick and Tuchel. It's the second European trophy in a row that's been picked up by an ex PSG manager after Unai Emery's triumph on Wednesday. Carl City missing out though. They got to the final this time. And you know, the journey when you think that today is the 30th of May and it was on this day in 1999 that the greatest goal in City history, at least until Sergio Aguero, etc., happened, actually got them out of the third division and, and on, you know, the first steps on this road, I suppose, to to a Champions League final and they'll be back as Pep said after they've had a bit of a lie down yeah I think what's interesting is it takes about a decade to sort out your Champions League we've seen you know we saw this with Manchester United under Ferguson it took several years to translate that domestic dominance into continental dominance Arsenal were very very good and then they had their sort of crescendo in 2006 and haven't come back since Chelsea get a Bromwich money in 2003, 2004, and then it takes them you know, 10 years and a bit to figure out how to win a Champions League, which they get in 2012. This is the fun thing about the Champions League in its current state. No matter, there is a degree of variance, oddity, and just learning experience you need to, you know, several years to figure out. PSG still haven't won it with all their money. Um, so I look forward to the Swiss format uh, completely ruining this. <laughs> I'm going to miss away goals so much. <laughs> and we'll talk about away goals later on, Carl. But congratulations to City and, and, and Chelsea. Both of them contributed an excellent final. I think the, there might have been some doubts about whether seeing them go at it for the third time in, in six weeks, etc. was going to be all that enthralling, but it, it was a blast. Uh, Daniel, it looks like you were shaping up with a final thought on this. No, I just I just thought it was really nice for, for Tuchel, was that a year ago he kind of had that leg in plaster and had to sit there and couldn't move <laughs> and kind of was intent to make up for it in the last 10 minutes by basically acting as one of those kind of ultra, the, the guy that stands at the front of the ultras and commandeers everyone to... Yeah, with the megaphone. He was basically doing that for the last 10 minutes, just constantly geeing up the crowd. And the commentator... Glenn Hoddle on, wasn't happy about yeah, it. Could, all, yeah, Hoddle was saying, you know, you want someone to be calm. And to be honest, Hoddle was kind of right. You want you want the players to look at the manager and, and feel like he's got it sorted. If anything, he looked like he was just kind of... He, he was com- supremely confident that Chelsea were going to hold on. And therefore, he was just kind of ex- enjoying that extended moment of victory after last year. So, yeah, I thought that was really nice to see him kind of fully buying into that. I loved, mm. the, I loved the fact that he was conducting a crowd, a crowd, any crowd. We've got a crowd back. It's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was, I was a bit perplexed. I know, I know what Glenn Hoddle was trying to say, but I just think the context of the, the last fifteen months, it was just let's get a din in the stadium, uh, a happy, joyous din, and and that tension that comes with it, and oh, that was brilliant to see. Mm. Saturday was a busy day and a brilliant one all round for West London football. A few hours before events in Porto, Chelsea's neighbours Brentford securing promotion to the Premier League in the Championship playoff final. Let's talk about that next. Euros are here and you'd better make the most of them because they only come around every four, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpadium. Yeah? If the grass is greener on the other side, 
Come and play on it. If your book is not giving you the best rewards, switch and you'll get a completely free £5 bet builder on all England's group games. Paddy Power. Pre-match bet builder bets only. Min two plus legs online exclusive. Must have previously deposited to avail. T's and C's apply. 18 plus begambleaware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. The curse is broken. The pain of playoffs past is banished. The Premier League beckons for Thomas Frank and Brentford. Premier League has its 50th different team. Very excitingly, uh, Saturday at Wembley, a year on from losing in the promotion final against Fulham. Brentford secured their place back in the top flight of English football for the first time in 70 four years it is the longest gap between two top flight seasons in english football history it was a pretty comfortable game in the end against swansea yes it was um scoring early always helps obviously to settle undisputed and inevitable nerves but this was basically the the brentford that that thomas frank wanted to see in the playoff final last season and has seen for most of this season with the occasional wobble they are uh, a side that has incredible control over games uh, and an incredible confidence in what they're doing. And there's a number of leaders who seem to kind of step up at different times in games. Tony is obviously the, the headline for his goals, but Pontus Janssen is a kind of leader by personality. But, you know, Emiliano Marcond is, is exactly the same. And they're just... I thought Ethan Pinnock was brilliant yesterday. Phenomenal at the centre-half with Janssen. And yet they're just... Um, yeah, I'm delighted to see them in the Premier League. I, like Dom with the, said with the Champions League, I don't really have a a horse in the race, but the way they've performed over the last two years um, and the freshness of them in the Premier League, I think there will be far more Leeds-like than, than Fulham and West Brom-like. Daniel, is there a slightly wistful note to your voice there, watching a championship side that's well-run, securing promotion to the top flight? Yeah, there is, because... Brentford and and we should say Norwich as well, who who obviously won the league. They are clubs who, in a very similar way, are exactly the blueprint of what you should do in the Championship, which is to scout meticulously. You know, I tweeted it yesterday: scout meticulously. Um, don't be afraid of selling players. You know, see that as a positive, not a negative, because it allows you to buy cheaper ones that you'll then sell sell again for profit and trust the manager and. Yeah, there, there are clubs in the Championship, of which the one I support is one, who, who have got this kind of... I think it's an accidental or, or kind of inherent arrogance rather than an overt arrogance, but that, that they can do things a different way. And recent history shows us that just isn't the case. Less recent history, of course, has different things to tell. And funnily enough, on this day, Daniel, as you're no doubt aware, it's what well, today's the 42nd anniversary of that 1-0 victory over Malmo, the first of the two European Cup successes for for yeah. Forrest. As as you and, and any other football supporter will know, Forrest fans don't really like to talk about it. So, <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, on a very brief point, there is, a, it, there is a very weird position for me to be in as someone who wasn't born when either of those finals happened. There's a right. kind of, a sort of jealousy of, of fans of your own club, which is a very odd position to be in. I wouldn't take it away from them from the world, obviously, because it's also part of my supporting, and yet I didn't get to experience any of it, which Mm. makes me one of the unlucky ones, I think. Right. Well, one man who did get to experience, thankfully, the full delights of of Brentford's promotion on Saturday, experienced them all too well, uh, was Billy Grant of the Be Sotted podcast, and he joins us now. Billy, how are you this morning? Oh, mate, I'm, I'll tell you something, I'm buzzing. I've actually not been to sleep. Billy, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm interested to know what you, what you think will happen now with the the B-team structure at Brentford and whether promotion to the Premier League actually means that, that the Brentford go a different way again or do they maintain that um, that, that B-team structure or, or do they do they reintegrate a, an academy facility back at, at Brentford? 
the, the, the B team structure has been really good for Brentford, obviously, it's worked for us. Matthew Benham has always been interested in developing players, that's why he got the academy. The, 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 the shame with what happened was that a few of our very key players that we thought would come through, unfortunately got plucked off by bigger teams, you know, Man United and Man Cities. And so what's happened is that we just, re you know, I think for Matthew Benham, he's thinking, I'm investing in an academy, but if my best players are, you know, are coming and being plucked off by, you know, by these bigger teams, I don't, you know, I don't need 50,000, 100,000, 150,000, you know. Chris Meppen, who came through our B team, we sold him, you know, played 30 games for Brentford, we sold him for 15 million. And he wants to develop these players and put them into the first team. So I think at this time, he felt that the B team is going to be a better setup because at least if you can sign players on contracts, you don't get the, the, the poaching type thing happening. So it's allowed us to develop players who have been maybe dropped off from other academies or, or not quite there at other levels and we develop them. But I do believe when we come back to um, the Premier League now, he will always look at the, the, opportunity, you know, the opportunities and I think he will definitely look at the academy, not say 100%, maybe there might be a combination of the two where you've got the B team, the academy leads into the B team, maybe or something like that. But it's not something he's averse to, but at the time, he needed to invest all his money into getting us to the Premier League because once you've got the Premier League, then that helps you to actually fund things like academy because they're not cheap. No, absolutely. It's incredible, the, the list of names who've, who've gone who've got on to play in the Premier League from or even manage in the case of Dean Smith from Brentford Ollie Watkins Saeed Benrahma Neil Mope Ezukonsa Tarkovsky in Dallas as, as well but after a season spent watching Fulham kind of struggling in your place in the top flight uh, how confident are you about the Bees being able to come in and, 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 and truly make, make their mark? I think well first of all they've been planning for this for years okay they sit down and they've been, they're playing the players that they want to buy probably 18 months ago. They know exactly who they want to buy, who's they're going to shift around in the side. As you know, they're very good in the way they use the analytical data to find rough gems that nobody ever knows. And the fact is that going to the Premier League is going to give us bigger pots to play with. No, we're not going to go like Aston Villa and maybe spend £150 million because that's not what we do. But instead of buying a player for £5 million, we probably buy a player for £8 million or £10 million or maybe even push the boat out and go £12 million on a superstar player. You know what I'm saying? But that £12 million player to Brentford will be worth, you know, £40 million or £50 million. That's kind of just the way that we work. And I've got the utmost confidence in these guys. And the reason why is that when we first start supporting them and uh, not supporting them, but we come to the championship and then Andre Gray comes and we loved Andre Gray. And then all of a sudden the following summer we had to sell him and all the fans are going, no, no, you can't do that. And they're like, don't worry, we'll get someone better. And you think, no, he's not going to happen. And the following season you get someone, then you've got Scott Hogan and then he's better. And then you get Malpay and then we sell him and then you get Ollie Watkins. And every time they seem to get the results. So we have to trust our directors of football. We've got Rasmus, you've got Phil Giles, they're brilliant in what they do and they know exactly what they want, how they're going to do it. They got through this year, through the pandemic, and they got through this year even with um, um, injuries. You know, Josh uh, um, the De Silva injured, Rico Henry injured, you know, Pontus Jansen injured, got the injury, we've got COVID, we've got a restricted squad to people and they've done the business. So I do believe they're going to go there and we're not going to do a Fulham because Fulham spent loads of money and they bought the wrong types of players. We won't do that. I think that will be all right. I'm not saying we're going to stay up. I'm not saying that, but what I'm going to say is that we'll do it sensibly. And even if things has happened and we do come down, we'll be a lot more of a secure side if we do come down um, because we'll have the money in the pot and we'll have you know, players who will be able to compete even better. So I'm really confident and I'm just happy we're going to go to this new stadium, Absolutely. go with all the fans and have a right laugh. That's what I'm really happy about. Finally going to get to enjoy the, the, your, new, your new place. What are you most looking forward to seeing there? The last two games, the Bournemouth game was unbelievable. In the pub with your mates beforehand, singing beforehand, walking down to the stadium, inside the stadium, all your mates together. The, the atmosphere was great. So for me, I was just thinking, oh, I forgot what this is like. It's a year and this is what football's all about. This is what I love. And we, we always said, like, you know, even if we don't beat Bournemouth, it's going to be great coming to New Griffin Park, as we call it, next season. 17,000 in the championship, you know, just singing and going out with your mates. So I'm so looking forward to going to football because that's what it's all about. It's not about watching it on the TV, it's watching it in the stadium. The pre-match is the post-match, going up and down the country, meeting other fans. That's what I'm most looking forward to. And listen, it's a bonus that we play Man City, it's a bonus that we play in Arsenal, it's a bonus to play that. But I also love going to Preston, I love going to, you know, Borough, I love to go in places. I'll go anywhere to go to football, so I don't really mind. As long as football's fact, 
on the terraces, in the stands, and we're enjoying it. That, for me, is key. Brilliant. Billy, it's been lovely having you on. We look forward to hearing from you on, on your travels and, uh, if we can, uh, when the new season rolls around. Yeah, listen, thanks very much for having you on your show again. Listen, you guys, and, you know, great show. And uh, you can tell that I'm really happy. You can probably tell I'm probably delirious. I've had no sleep whatsoever for, I don't know, is it nearly full going on to 48 hours now? I'm on a roll. I'm going to get inside the car. My wife's going to drive me in the car, and I'm going to probably conk out in the car on the way home. And my daughter is going to be telling me about her football match that she played, and I'll be asleep, and I'll pretend that I heard everything she said. Nice one. <laughs> Top parenting, Billy. Thank you so much, and congratulations. Enjoy the summer. Okay, every kid, and you too, man. Well, that was very much Billy Grant from the B Sussed podcast. Magnificent. Yeah, and great to hear, perhaps fueled by a lack of sleep, but just that kind of delirious joy of not just getting to the Premier League, but realizing that going to the games wherever you're going is 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 the thing now. I th- mm. This last eighteen months has been horrible, but. I do hope that it kind of forges a reconnection because I'm one of those people who was going to watch my team play kind of out of grim loyalty rather than any huge enjoyment at times. And it does kind of reinforce how much you miss it when it's not there. Billy was bullish about Brentford's prospects. Uh, How much strengthening, this is a question from Kaz B, how much strengthening do you guys think Thomas Frank needs to do over the summer to give Brentford a decent chance? Bearing in mind that he got promoted without having having lost two key players sold last summer in Watkins and Benrahma, and and then three players through injury, three key players in that, that were absent at, at, at Wembley in Rico Henry, um, Nordgaard in midfield was out, and Josh De Silva, yeah, of course, in midfield as well. So um, if those guys are back, then there is a depth of quality there but you have you have to strengthen if you're going to stand any chance I mean and and they will want to compete but I can't I just can't see them changing their model they may upgrade slightly on the type of signing they make in terms of the fee but they're not going to suddenly go out and spend 25 million pounds on a player they're not going to do what Leeds did last summer they're gonna they'll, they'll be they'll be they'll be shrewder about it and there may be something along the lines of the the Norwich you know not not planning for relegation, but but we're not gonna we're not gonna be daft here. We've got we believe in the quality we've got. We believe in the structure and the and the idea and the philosophy that we've got. The club we're not gonna rip that up just because we've gone into the Premier League because we've we've built this over a period of time because we believe it will work in the Premier League, and I, I suspect that that will be the that will dictate the type of signing they make in the summer. You know, over the last two seasons, Sheffield United I think their eight most used players when they finished high up the league were their championship squad. Leeds last season, their eighth most used players were part of the championship squad. It can be done. Um, I almost feel more optimistic than Billy in that he said, I'm not saying we'll stay up. I think they will stay up. Although they finished third, I think they're the best place of those clubs to do it because Norwich are going to, it sounds like, sell Buendia uh, and maybe sell Todd Cadwell as well and it's very hard to replace those two. Brentford have proved that they can do that. So, yeah, why not? All right. Well, congratulations to the bees. Commiserations to Swansea. We'll be back in a second or two with another top on this day as we launch into a bit of a chat about England. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, and I'm here to tell you what The Athletic has planned across its podcast network during the Euros. My pod with David Ornstein will become the Athletics England show throughout the tournament to bring you all the latest news and insight from inside the England camp every single day. Then we'll also have nightly editions of the Totally Football Show, taking a look at all the big talking points from the competition and looking ahead to the next day's fixtures. Now, if you're feeling nostalgic for tournaments past, we've produced an eight-part documentary series that tells some fascinating stories from both on and off the pitch from the last eight euros elsewhere michael cox's zonal marking pod will offer an in-depth tactical breakdown of all the biggest games while adam hurry's football cliche show will take a look at the tournament's alternative storylines so as this never ending domestic season finally draws to a close we'll have plenty of euro 2020 coverage for you to enjoy as the tournament gets underway in just a couple of weeks time 
This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Hey, listen, the 30th of May is a busy one. Uh, in 2006 on this day... Theo Walcott, aged 17 years and 75 days, became England's youngest international ever in England's 3-1 victory over Hungary at Old Trafford. Building up, of course, to the 2006 World Cup in Germany. It was a game also noteworthy for Peter Crouch's robot dance after he had scored England's third goal. Was Walcott one of the most shocking tournament call-ups of all time, would you say? Just a you know, contextualise this, he'd, he'd yet to play for his club in the league, let alone for England. And when I say his call-up, by the way, I also don't mean for this friendly, I mean the fact that he got taken to Germany in place of, who, who was it instead of? Jermaine Defoe, certainly, and, and Darren ben, Bent. Yeah. yeah. It was the strangest one in recent slash living memory. Theo Walcott is a very curious footballer to me because... There was definitely a point in his career where he was not, you know, his talent did not suggest he he was, you know, worthy of the accolades he was getting. And there was definitely a point where it looked like it might have got there. Then he gets the ACL tear, which unfortunately takes one or two rungs off his uh, talent ladder, shall we say. Um, and, and he's just, it's there was definitely a point where Theo Walcott was good and was that good and was good enough to what all the newspaper headlines and whatnot matched. And I think we forget that sometimes in between um, watching stints of him play for Everton and indeed Southampton and indeed some of the early bits at Arsenal. Uh, it's still quite weird that he's in his 30s. Time moves forward. <laughs> well, it does. Sven, though, he was going into his third and last tournament with England, the, the Germany World Cup, and does feel a little bit like he was just so oh, well screw it that's just <laughs> but it was the omission of a of a Defoe or a Bent was was odd in that context because Wayne Rooney was recovering from a metatarsal injury Michael Owen had hardly played at all since the turn of the year I think he I think he'd hurt his own possibly his own metatarsal on New Year's Day in a defeat at Spurs I want to say for Newcastle and I think he'd only featured fleetingly for Newcastle over the range of that term and although he went on to play in the in those friendly fixtures and started the first two group games I think in in Germany he then did his ACL in the opening exchanges of the Sweden game the third match um, and a lot of the a lot of the comment around that injury was that the, the muscles are on his, in his leg simply hadn't recovered properly and therefore it put more strain on the knee and, and the knee had twisted and he'd gone down so England probably could have done with a striker at that point um, to to help the robot up up top, um, but um, didn't have one. They had a sixteen year old kid who didn't kick a ball at the tournament instead. Mm. Didn't didn't work out too well for for Theo either. I, I think. I mean, we, we mentioned the perception of, of players and, and the pressure that puts on them. I, I'm not sure how much it it helped his career. Jermaine Defoe certainly didn't help him because this, I think, was the third or well, it was one of three occasions that he'd been in the mix for a tournament for England and didn't get the call-up. I mean, the reason I, I know that is I've just read a piece on, funnily enough, The Athletic called... I mean, it's basically about when athletes get cut, which is a very topical thing at this moment. Gareth Southgate preparing for Tuesday when he has to announce a slimmed-down England team. Starts, actually, this article with a terrific story from the French camp from France uh, ahead of Euro 2008, where Dominic tells the entire team 
to go to their rooms and he's going to come by to knock on the unlucky seven's doors to say, listen, off, off you go. And when he gets around, he discovers that Samia Nasri has, has already been around randomly knocking on people's doors just to put the wind up. Anyway, anyway uh, there's all the classics in there, including uh, Gascoigne uh, bursting into Phil Neville's, I'm sorry, Phil, chat and, and uh, kicking a, a hole in a wardrobe and stuff. But yeah, uh, so that's what awaits on Tuesday with Gareth. I'm sure he'll find a very, very uh, understanding and, and, and friendly way of doing it. But uh, yeah, so seven players have to go from the 33. Who who would your seven be? Or, or, or do you want to try and pick a, a team for the, this England game against Austria on Wednesday? Ooh, okay. So I had a go at predicting seven for another article on The Athletic. Okay. Um and I made the call to unfortunately tell Harry Maguire he will not be joining us for the Euros because I, I think he's he's got ankle ligament damage, and I don't want a Harry Maguire with that many painkillers in him trying to play football in the group stages for England. I think it's better off if he just rehabs at home rather than grins and bears it. Uh, I think Aaron Ramsdale will be getting a polite nod and a goodbye because I don't believe uh, you need four goalkeepers at a tournament I can see I think what's been interesting about the Champions League final is you know, the teams that featured in European finals will not be featuring in at least one if not two of the friendlies due to they're not going to get back until Tuesday so I can see Rhys James's performance in this Champions League final probably giving him the nudge ahead of the other right backs which uh, has a knock-on effect for everyone else. So Vichain seemed excellent. Kieran Tripp has just won La Liga. Someone will probably have to go unless you uh, reinvent Carl Walker as the centre-back only uh, and then send some other people home. I think one of the Bens, either White or Godfrey, will go home. And Biako Saka's versatility might work against him in a 26-person squad. That's Mm. my guess. Oh, wait, I haven't yeah. named seven, have I? <laughs> yeah, you're missing one, I think. <laughs> uh, it's Watkins versus Greenwood in my head. And I think the Europa League might have given Southgate what he needs to tell Greenwood, I'll wait for uh, the World Cup next year. Okay. And what about the 11, Dom and Daniel? I, I, I will shy away from picking the one against Austria because I think it will be heavily clearly affected by the players involved in finals. I'm happy to try and pick one for the first group game against Croatia, uh, which I think will be Pickford, Trippier, Maguire if fit, um, Stones, Shaw, uh, Henderson, Rice, Mount, Foden, and then it's Sterling, Kane, or um, Sancho, Kane, I think. And I think he'll go Sterling, Kane. Don, what do you make of that? I think he'll play three at the back against Croatia. Um, I think he'll start the tournament with three at the back, although that will depend again on Harry Maguire's fitness. I imagine he he will play... Oh God, this is going to be tricky now. Pickford, <laughs> Walker, Maguire, Stones. James and uh, Chilwell as wing-backs. Um, Mount. Oh, my word. Henderson if fit. No, wait a minute. No, it'll be Rice. It'll be Rice. Oh, I don't know anymore. I've lost it. We'll have Henderson and Rice in the middle. Yeah. We'll have Mount um, and uh, Foden playing off Kane. Okay. I mean, we, you've just come off burying your head in the, the Champions League final. I think there'll, there'll be a day or two where we readjust to the, the build-up to Euro 2020. <laughs> Daniel, I think that the difference with you is that you've been counting down to Euro 2020 well, I mean, we all have for over a year because of the date and that, but but for a very long time, you're more excited and worried about it, naturally, but you're more excited about this England team than you have been for a while. Yeah, you're absolutely right in that I'm more worried about it because I'm more excited about it. Um, yeah, <laughs> since 2017, basically, this was the tournament that we had the biggest chance of winning because it was a, a Europe-only tournament and it was three years after that unprecedented summer of, of youth success and seven of the players in that summer were in this squad. Mm. Um, including Foden and Mount, who will start, including Rhys James, who starred in the Champions League final. So it is brilliant, but it's just that last 16 draw that really worries me. Seven is a big number as well, because seven games that England potentially could be playing here at home, and seven of the 33-man squad 
actually starting in the Champions League final, which is extraordinary. When we think of Chelsea and Man City, we don't think of them being all about homegrown talent, or at least not through the years. But this was very much a, a, a Champions League final that was all about England. I mean, that was the dominant nation. Just need to get Kante that, Kante that dodgy passport and we, <laughs> we might actually win a tournament. <laughs> All right, well, we'll have loads more build-up, of course, uh, to Euro 2021. I've got a couple of totally preview shows of the, the teams and their prospects. And there's also, as mentioned, uh, an England-focused podcast with daily England uh, podcast updates all coming to you from uh, The Athletic. In this show, still to come, the away goals rule is going. Should we mourn its passing like car or celebrate the lifting of this curse on football fairness? We'll be having a chat about that. First, though, let's get some odds from Carl Monaghan of Paddy Power. Hello, James. Hello again, listeners. Euro 2020 takes centre stage this summer, albeit a year late, thanks to the pandemic. But uh, rather interestingly for Gareth Southgate's England, the extra year's wait has definitely strengthened England further. And they lie as the pre-tournament favourites at 4-1. to one. Players like Foden, Luke Shaw... Declan Rice, Jude Bellingham, Jack Grealish, all considerably better than they were 12 months ago. So Gareth Sokin no doubt boasts a squad full of attacking talent, but will he be able to get the formula right at the business end of the tournament, presuming they get out of their group, which contains Scotland, the Czech Republic and Croatia? Remember, we'll have a free £5 bet builder bet on all England group games. Remember all three of them at Wembley. France are the second favourites at 5-1. to one. Their chances are massively boosted by the return of Karim Benzema after the Real Madrid striker enjoyed one of the best campaigns of his career to date in the Liga. If Pogba and Kante can stay fit in the middle of the park for Le Bleu, they could go all the way. Belgium, no doubt, have the talent in their ranks. And with the likes of Kevin De Bruyne and Romelu Lukaku, they are sure to leave a mark on this tournament. You can back the Belgians at 6-1. to one. Now, Spain are 7-1 to one and are hoping life after Sergio Ramos treats them well. Luis Enrique, of course, named no Real Madrid players in his squad, so I expect him to be slaughtered in the Spanish press if they don't go all the way. Italy, just like England, get to play all three of their group games at home. This will be a huge advantage for Mancini Zazuri, who will be a tough nut to crack at the Stadio Olimpico and will certainly fancy their chances of topping Group A. You can back Italy at a price of 15-2. to two. Elsewhere, Germany are 15-2 to two in the betting as the curtain comes down on Joko Malo's 15-year tenure after the tournament. There'll be the usual takers on demand shaft, but many don't fancy the Germans this time round, and I'm one of them. Group F certainly looks like the Grim Reapers won, with France, Portugal and Hungary all fighting for points. Thank you, Carl. You can find out those odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Why not get a subscription for yourself? Listener to The Athletic, if you haven't already got one, it'll bring you unrivaled coverage of Euro 2020 in 21. Uh, you can get all the articles, all the podcasts ad-free and also Q&As with writers for the bargain price of £4 a month. You can get that at theathletic.com slash totally. Lots of managerial merry-go-round type news, particularly if you're a fan of Italian football. I'll, I'll race through this because lots of people aren't. But you probably saw that Allegri is confirmed now back at Juventus. And Simone Inzaghi, who was about to renew at Lazio, then went, no, I'm going to Inter because Conte's leaving. And Zidane has confirmed the fact that he's removing himself from Real Madrid. Spalletti's gone to Napoli. And oh. Gattuso's probably going to go to Fiorentina. Yeah, it's all happening in Italy. It's a giddy carousel of coaching. Is it, the, is it the case that 18 of the Serie A clubs are changing manager this that summer? That sounds right, Dom. And that you wonder really what's wrong at the other two. <laughs> <laughs> they just haven't done it yet. That sounds right, because I'm, I'm struggling to think is of one Atalanta that has... Atalanta Milan, is it? Yeah, that, that would be it. Yeah, who've had great seasons. Uh, good. Oh, uh, big news on Friday. UEFA, who've now warned again the Rebel 3 of Juventus, Real Madrid and Barcelona that they face potential expulsion from the Champions League if they don't renounce their Super League heresy, demonstrated perhaps their new ruthlessness by taking the axe to the pale innocent form of the away goals rule. Crikey, this has been hinted at before and people have even invoked it, but UEFA just wading in and, and, and axing it. It still has to be ratified by the UEFA's executive committee, which is going to convene on July the 9th, but hot takes and impassioned reactions are already coming in, not least from Carl, 
who said, let me get you a quote, Carl. Away goals are great. Away goals do not count for double. Away goals should not count in extra time, but it's so funny we should keep it. Everyone loves away goals, says Carl, until their team gets knocked out on away goals. As happened with Juve and Bayern Munich, of course, in, in this year's uh, tournament. Do you agree, Dom and Daniel, with Carl's assessment there of the popularity of away goals? I don't know if I feel strongly about away goals. What? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I'm Daniel. trying to think, do I or not? No, I, 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 I think it, to me the shame is that, it, that away goals is an intrinsic part of me watching European football right. and that it doesn't really happen in any other context that English clubs play in. You know, it doesn't happen in the playoffs, which is our only other similar scenario. So that is a shame, but it was brought in in the 60s when, you know, for, for reasons that clubs were travelling to places they didn't know and therefore they wanted to try and persuade them not to just put 10 men behind the ball and defend mm. all game, which has probably been lost now. But yeah, I think it is a shame, but for kind of nostalgic reasons. And as we all know, nostalgia is king. Absolutely. Carl, would you like to respond to that? I, I still think away goals has a place, even if in the age of private jets and, and slightly more comfortable travel. I think, I mean, the theory is we've got to a, a new cutting edge of the tactical game and, and yeah the away goals are meant to encourage a degree of entertaining football and I've always thought of it not so much as away goals count double but away goals cost 1.1 goals so it's still the compound interest that kills you you know conceding one away goal not too bad conceding two or three then you're in a bit of trouble and when you think of how many brilliant Champions League ties have been decided by away goals you consider Tottenham Hotspur's victory over Ajax does not exist without away goals you don't get that very weird state where certain stadiums have their own unique aura if away goals isn't in there somewhere to feed it in yes look it's not totally fair but i don't think football and fairness are as natural bedfellows as everyone would like to pretend they are i just i utterly love away goals as a concept they bring they bring the drama that we want football to have and we pretend football always has so why get rid of it oh because juventus are lost as tends to be the habit with recent things in European football. I'm not sure if, if it's necessarily Juve that's, that's been able to... Exist I know, I know it's not Juventus's fault, but also it's Juventus's fault. Okay, well, <laughs> not a bad axiom to approach football with. But anyway, Daniel. Uh, yeah, Martin Lipton put it really nicely on Twitter in a way that I hadn't really thought about. And it's, it's one of very, very few things in sport where you can go from winning demonstrably winning to demonstrably losing in the same action you know there's no it's one moment to change winning to losing you could argue in boxing maybe with a a kind of late knockout punch or something but yeah that that is its attraction um now more than the anachronistic reasons it was brought in i think and we're not going to hear commentators saying in many ways this doesn't change the task they're facing Anymore. No, but how long will they spend? How many years will we have to listen to them reminding us that there is no longer no longer any way goals? We're still wasting that time. Mm. <laughs> I really hope it doesn't get ratified. I would love for it to stay. Peak away goals was the All Milan Champions League semi final, no, where Inter went through on away goals despite playing at their home stadium. Genius, because <laughs> they were facing. I like the uh, I like the Ovrabo evening. No, I didn't like the Overbury evening, obviously, but the Overbury evening, uh, Chelsea-Barcelona, where Chelsea were 1-0 up, should have been 6-0 up. And Andres <laughs> Indiesta with that unbelievable goal and stoppage time at the end. Yeah, that, that, that that's exactly what Daniel's just said. I suddenly, suddenly really love away goals. I want away goals back. Well, it's probably another decent axiom to approach football with. If you wait for a planning to change it, it's probably worth keeping. Uh, very good. Uh, Dom... I raced through some managerial changes. Who's your new boss going to be at Selhurst Park? Do we know yet? Oh, I would say one of Nuno, Sean Dyche or Valerian Ismail. Really? So take your pick, really, at any point That's next week. That's a fun trio. That last name again? Valerian Ismail, the Barnsley manager. Ah, right. I thought Eddie Howe would have been... Is Eddie Howe just not, not in the frame at all? I don't think Interesting. so. Interesting. Who would you have, Dom? Roy Hodgson. I see. <laughs> That's the traditional No, I'm, 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 in fairness, out of those three, I, I, I don't know, to be honest. I, 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 I'm intrigued to see how they would all approach um, the summer at, at, at Crystal Palace, given the amount of change there's going to be. Right. Um, I can see that there's an excitement around Nuno, potentially, mm. but um, 
I do wonder whether Sean Dyche might be the sensible option. Crikey. It's a lot to ponder, isn't it? Carl, I won't ask you who you want at your club next season because that would take us into a whole new conversation. Let's instead wrap this totally up. As I mentioned, there are a couple of preview shows that we'll be having uh, ahead of the Euros, which start in less than two weeks now. So look out for those. And looking forward to hearing from you guys in the course of that that tournament when that gets underway. For now, many, many thanks for today and for all your hard work and uh, excellence throughout the season. Daniel, Dom and Carl, and producer Charlie, of course. And listener, thank you for being with us. This pretty much wraps up the end of this season. The new one's barely days away. I'm not sure actually where you include the Euros in that. But anyway, that wraps it up for today's show. From all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.